0: Welcome to our continued look at the race for the White House with Real Clear Politics podcast, In the Arena. I'm correspondent Alexis Simendinger. In the final 40 days of the election, our reporters and editors are stepping back each Thursday to dissect election developments and take a closer look at 2016 battlegrounds. In our podcast this week, we focused on ways campaigns are using data and political advertising in this year's contests, and we took a deep dive into swing state Iowa. RealClear's polling analyst David Byler asked David Seawright, director of analytics and product innovation at Deep Root Analytics, a Republican firm, to describe how campaigns are influencing voter perceptions and engagement using innovative new tools. RealClear's co-founder Tom Bevan grabbed some interesting insights from Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump surrogates in the spin room following Monday night's debate drama at Hofstra University. In this week's Battlegrounds segment, RealClear's national political correspondent Caitlin Huey-Burns asked Iowa GOP Chairman Jeff Kaufman and Democratic political strategist Norm Sturzenbach, based in Des Moines, why the Hawkeye State's six electoral college votes could go either way. And helping make that point, Clinton is in Iowa Thursday and Trump campaigned there Wednesday. We welcome your feedback at RealClearPolitics.com. First up, Kaylin Huey-Burns discovers that in Iowa, Republican officials believe the party's embrace of Trump will prove decisive, while Democrats believe Clinton's investment in organizing on the ground and early voting could give her the edge. It's Election Day in Iowa. No, we haven't skipped
1: November just yet, but early voting kicks off today in the Hawkeye State, a key battleground that President Obama won twice. This cycle, though, it could swing back to Republicans, due in large part to Donald Trump. The GOP nominee once seemed an unlikely fit for the state. Remember this? How stupid are the people of Iowa? Now, Trump finds himself leading Hillary Clinton here, according to the Real Clear Politics polling average. So, what gives? Well, demographics. 92% of Iowans are white, and just 26% have a college degree. This is Trump's sweet spot. Republican caucus-goers here tend to be more conservative and religious, but the overall electorate in Iowa could be ripe for Trump. Iowa has a history of populism. That's Jeff Kaufman, the chairman of the Iowa State GOP. Trump has another thing going for him here that he lacks elsewhere. The state's Republican cavalry, led by Republican Governor Terry Branstad, is fully behind him.
2: We've got to be one of the very few states that has uh, every single one of our statewide officials, our governor, lieutenant governor, and every federal official that is behind him. I mean, I, I, I've i taken the lead in not only very bold, very bluntly criticizing the Never Trump movement, but, um, you know, I, I stated way back in, in uh, right before the caucuses that if Trump wins the nomination, the party will be behind him. I think my quote was a thousand percent. So, we, you know, I think our state has as absolutely our state leaders have been very proactive, I, I, think, I think the stars are all aligning here.
1: Iowa offers just six electoral votes, a small number compared to its Midwestern neighbors. But in a close race, it could make a difference. And that's why both candidates were here this week. The state is vital to Trump's path to victory, and a loss in a place with such favorable demographics would be a sign of serious trouble. Clinton, meanwhile, has pathways to the White House that don't depend on Iowa, but a win here could block Trump. And Democrats in Iowa are not convinced that Trump has a hold on the voters here.
3: I I don't see Donald Trump being able to attract um, the so-called Reagan Democrats. I think white working-class voters in Iowa are looking for people that are actually going to help make their lives better, and that's just not the platform that Donald Trump has put forward, and that's not the record that he has shown in the past. Um, I just don't think that, that... Iowans are going to buy it.
1: That's Norm Sturzenbach, a Democratic strategist based in Des Moines. He and other Democrats say that Clinton's ground game will lead to victory, and they say she can actually expand her appeal, namely to suburban Iowans reluctant to support Trump. The priority for Democrats right now is early voting.
3: We don't look at it as as election day as November eighth. We look at it as. Um, every day from September 29th to November 8th, it's Election Day, and it's another opportunity to turn out more voters. It's a really big deal for our organizing strategy. Um, there are people in Iowa who have never voted on Election Day.
1: Meanwhile, Republicans sound very confident, with <laughs> high praise for their nominee. But that doesn't mean they think Trump is a model for future candidates here in Iowa.
2: Trump, one thing about him, he is very blunt, even with Iowa. And he, he, he straightforward says, I, I'd rather have a primary system than a caucus system. And islands are very, very loyal to our caucus system. I think Trump is a phenomenon. I really do. Uh, you know, we've had. I, I think one could argue that that President Obama was a bit of a phenomenon in terms of somebody as far left as he was being able to win a general election in the same way that Reagan in the '80s was a bit of a phenomenon, where he wasn't the you know the typical. You have to be moderate and in the middle in order to. Uh, win a presidential race. And I think those were, I I think both of those gentlemen will be seen in political uh, history as a, as a bit of, um, of exceptions to the rule. I think Donald Trump will be seen as an exception to the rule uh, because of his personality and because of his, his mass appeal because the stars were lining up with frustration. I think his style of campaigning fit him, but I do not believe at all that it will change the way that Iowans expect uh, our, our, our candidates to come out and court our votes out
0: here. Here's Tom Bevan taking you inside the spin room after the first presidential debate.
4: I'm Tom Bevan, co-founder and publisher of Real Clear Politics. We were in the spin room after the first debate between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton at Hofstra University. A little bit about the setting. Spin room is chaos after the debate ends. Campaign surrogates come in, with college students holding signs with their
5: names on them, and they're mobbed by reporters to give their take about what happened just moments before. And they stand there and they answer question after question about the event, giving all the reasons that their candidate
4: won and the other person failed. We listen in on some of the spin. Here's David Plouffe of the Clinton campaign talking about what Trump failed to do during the debate.
1: Were you Never expecting a more competitive, competitive Trump? Was, did you expect him to be angrier? More? No,
3: I thought he'd be sedate. I think he started out trying to be sedate, kind of in a straight jacket. And you could see, as you got into it, he started to get annoyed. Uh, you could facially, invisibly, uh, kind of got unhinged a bit, interrupting quite a bit. So um, I think he tried to behave himself, um, but I think he had trouble doing that.
4: Dan, and do, I, you think, do you think American voters, do you think they really moved at all through any of this tonight? Do you think any right. opinions were really changed?
3: Well, I've been through this a couple times now, and you, know, the, you have to look at the, the campaign in totality. But debates have always been a big moment. And, and we've got a pretty decent number of people out there that are undecided. Uh, I think clearly the Clinton campaign wants to pull some people away from Johnson and Stein, get more energy in her base. So I think she went a long way to starting that process tonight. Again, I don't think Trump probably added anything. I'd be surprised if an undecided voter out there are saying, ah, I've now seen from Donald Trump what I was looking for. Um, so, you know, there's two more. My suspicion is historically the first debate is always the largest audience. Um, you know, in 2012, we didn't have a great first debate. Uh, we were lucky that the third debate actually had a very big audience. So this was a big moment. Um, and I think she took advantage of it. Um, and I, I think he didn't. And it was, it was, having been through this, this is an audition for the presidency of the United States. So I think in addition to not seeming terribly interested in preparation, um, you know, he also had some pretty bad moments. And, you know, I've tried to, to study Donald Trump's psychology. I think he's more interested in defending himself Than winning the presidency, and I think that's what comes through.
0: What was the worst moment? changes the state of the race. I'm sorry, I already answered the question.
3: Well, it's not going to change overnight. But again, my view is Hillary Clinton entered tonight with a pretty important advantage, in terms of who has the best way to get to 270 electoral votes. I think she probably enhanced that strength tonight. I think Donald Trump is not winning this race, so I think he's got to do something to create a higher ceiling for himself. So these things don't change overnight, but I think that she definitely improved my senses, her ability to convert undecided voters. And I think she probably did create a lot of energy amongst her base, which is really important.
4: Why do you think it's tightening though? Do you think the undecideds were going for it? No,
3: no, I I think most of the tightening is she came out of the conventions with a unnaturally large lead. We had an unnaturally large lead in 2012 after Romney's 47% moment. We accelerated his recovery with a bad debate performance. But but I think the tightening has more to do with that. Um, you know, there's no doubt that I think Trump is doing fairly well in states like Ohio and Iowa. Um, my sense is they're going to be very close. I'd bet my money on Hillary Clinton to win those narrowly. But I think you look at Virginia, Colorado, uh, New Hampshire, Florida. I'd rather be Clinton than Trump in those, even before tonight. Uh, and I think he probably, uh, she probably helped herself a great deal. David, uh, what yeah. do you think the trajectory would be of uh, on the assessment of whether Trump is qualified to be president. How do you think this defect affected that? Well, I think with with Trump fans, not much. I think with the rest of the electorate, I think it will cause concern. I mean, that did not look like someone who prepared very much for this debate. There wasn't a lot of substance there. And I think there are some temperament issues. It's I, I found it remarkable he went to temperament as a reason to vote for him at the end. Because I threw, throughout that debate, you saw someone who was easily rattled, who clearly his plan was to go in there and be fairly sedate uh and i think that he quickly took the bait so uh and you know i ha- i've learned that these folks uh ron take the d- the voters take this decision very seriously about who their president is and they kind of imagine that person in moment of crisis or in the situation room or in the oval office or with world leaders or with congress and i don't think trump gave people a lot of confidence in my view David, i mean that's it. my greatest concern yeah. about him personally is his temperament even more than his policy Having worked in the White House, I can't imagine him manning the National Security Council uh, in a situation room. We've had 57 to 64 percent in the post every time they've asked ABC Post say he's not qualified. Does that go up or down after this, or not change? Well, it's pretty high to begin with, but I'd surprised if it wouldn't creep up into the high 60s. And that's an important marker. You said
5: he had a bunch of bad moments. What was the worst moment in your mind? It's hard to pick. I think
3: the the tax return moment was pretty bad, Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, almost gleefully saying it was smart not to pay taxes. I think the moment where he, you know, kind of said it's smart business to take advantage of the housing crisis. I think a lot of people have issue with that. I think the Iraq answer was bizarre. Uh, It's certifiably true that he was for the war. Uh, Call Sean Hannity. I mean, it was kind of like bizarre conspiracy theory stuff. Um, You know, I I think, you know, talking about um, her stamina was not a great moment because I actually think she was strong moment one to moment 90, okay? Uh, I think he faded a little bit. I don't know whether that's he doesn't have great stamina or he lost interest, but I think he struggled as the debate went on. I wish it was a two-hour debate for that moment. So lots of moments, but I think generally people look at this as a as a holistic. Again, the the viewership here, if the estimates are correct, is going to be massive. Right. To have that. Well, sure.
6: Well, when you get over 100 million, a bunch of them are up for grabs. What moment with Hillary Clinton made you think, ah, she just got someone that was kind of disliking her Well,
3: I think that moment where she talked about, you know, she's proud to have prepared both for the debate and for the presidency, and then sliding right into the birther exchange, where he kind of went around in that muck a little bit. I think that was probably the weakest moment of the debate for him. And I think for people out there, uh, swing voters, undecided voters, um, they look at that and say, uh, okay, there's a clear difference between these two candidates in terms of preparation. So um, he just, again, I don't think he did anything to add. to He's not going to lose the Trump lovers, right. but the Trump lovers will get him about 43% of the vote and a beatdown on election day. And he's got add Who to are that.
1: you talking about who she gained tonight?
3: Well, there, well, as Ron knows, you know, there's, you know, you can't say there's one type of swing voters. There are some suburban college educated women who might've even voted McCain and Romney available to her. There's still some Latino swing voters. There's some working class voters. So, but for people who are truly undecided, we used to call them up for grabs voters. They truly are up for grabs and you think you've got a chance at them. I think she probably did a lot of good tonight. Didn't close the sale with all of them, but I don't think Trump added anything uh, to what he's got. And again, my personal view of this race is she's in a very strong position. She entered the race in the lead. I think she's got many ways to 270 electoral votes. And so I think about swing uh, voters in the southern tier of New Hampshire in Nashua or in the I 4 quarter in Florida. Uh, I don't think she probably helped herself there.
4: And now here's Katrina Pearson of the Trump campaign with her take on what happened on
0: Monday night. What do you think he should should improve in the second or third debate?
6: Uh, As far as improvements, I think he will well he's got another couple of policies that are coming out that he'll want to talk about. Um, I think he'll spend more time talking about that. Um, Since we got this first debate out of the way, um, it doesn't make sense to ask the same questions in the second debate, so I think we'll focus more on policy at that point.
0: And when it comes to attacking Hillary Clinton, would you say he should do it in a more calmer way or a more aggressive way? you
6: You know, he really didn't attack Hillary Clinton tonight. You'll notice he didn't bring up the Clinton Foundation, he didn't bring up her husband, Um, He was really wanting to make sure that he could clear his record, for example with the Iraq war. I think he did that today.
3: Hillary Clinton was pretty aggressive. Mm -hmm. What do you think about her her performance tonight?
6: Well when you're losing, you have to be aggressive. And as Mr. Trump mentioned, the poll numbers that came out today, they're very much in his favor, including in the swing states. Particularly when you have uh, the swing state polls, I think he's only down in two at this point, no more than by five, uh, which is statistically tied in many cases. Um, So she absolutely had to. Uh, this was Mr. Trump's very first debate. There was no reason for him to to take any risk. He really just wanted to defend himself, get his message out there, and then we're going to move on. Virginia, do
0: you really think he corrected the, the record on Iraq? He was corrected by the moderator and by Hillary Clinton in saying that he did support the war on Iraq.
6: Oh, he absolutely did, because what they're referring to is a radio interview. Um, he's a citizen, did have any intelligence that the politicians had access to, and when he was asked, he just said, oh, well, I think so. That's not a support for any war because when he was, in fact, asked about the war, as he said, call Sean Hannity, he was very much against the war. Donald Trump never cast a vote that for any war, that he said that. not for any war. This was multiple times. In fact, I forget the, the article he talked about, it might have been the New York Times. It was the New York Times. They have the timeline there. I, you can check it out.
5: Are you concerned about the interrupting of Hillary Clinton? He did it a number of times, and even we heard him sigh a couple of times. Are you concerned that how that might play with voters?
6: No, not at all. Donald Trump is being Donald Trump. Um, If he wants to correct the record, he will correct the record.
0: And finally, you'll hear from David Byler, who interviews David Seawright about using data to try to win elections.
4: So this week we have David Seawright with us and we're going to talk about TV. And if you follow political news, you know that TV is a big deal. Candidates spend millions of dollars on ad buys. In various swing states, and tons of Americans, I don't know the exact number, but it's huge, will see these ads. And if the campaigns have their way, be persuaded to vote for a candidate or motivated to turn out on election day or have some other desired change in attitude or behavior happen. And since there's a decent chance that a number of our listeners either have already seen a political TV ad or are going to see one before November, I thought it would be a good idea to get information on whether these ads matter in election, what the goal of airing the ads is, if those goals get achieved, and also just about this whole mysterious black box that takes an ad from some person's imagination uh, onto your TV screen. So today we have David Seawright on the podcast, and he is exactly the right person to talk about this topic with. He's the director of analytics and product innovation at Deep Root analytics, which is a Republican analytics firm focused on TV. So Deep Root was started back in 2013 by Alex Lundry and some others. And Lundry was Mitt Romney's director of data science in his 2012 presidential campaign. And basically they try to help Republicans and private clients buy TV ads in a way that reaches specific target audiences. So David has overseen some really high-profile clients. Among them are Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's 2014 re-election campaign and HBO, who you might have heard of. So David is going to talk us through basically everything we need to know about TV and ads. So thanks for coming on the show. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. First question uh, is just about kind of the process of uh, ads in general, how they sort of get from the idea stage to on the specific person's tv screen uh somewhere and i'm asking this because most people who see these ads probably don't think too hard about it and don't realize how much effort and sort of analytics and interesting things go into this process you know they're busy people they watch the ad they might think about it for a little bit but i think our readers or our listeners rather um in particular uh, would probably be interested to you know kind of hear about that whole process and uh, why they're seeing what they're seeing and why they specifically are seeing it.
5: Traditionally, you've got a campaign, um, a a political campaign that wants to use TV advertising to uh, influence vote choice or mobilize people to vote. Fairly simple um, concept. Um, But before you can ever put an ad on TV, you need to think about what you want to say. What is your campaign? And this is going to be a combination of uh, the platform of your candidate, what they believe in, what they're running on, um, as, well as, uh, as well as data that you're seeing from polling and from focus groups and other forms of research about what matters and what resonates with people, with voters. Um, and so traditionally the way this works is that campaigns will do some form of message testing. So they'll take the issues that a, ca- a candidate believes in, the issues that a candidate is running on, and they will conduct some sort of poll um, calling people in the district or in the state, registered voters, likely voters, um, to ask how different messages would influence their vote choice. They do this to help determine what ads they should cut. So if a candidate is running on 10 issues, but you're only going to run three ads, you want to find out the three messages that will resonate most with, uh, with the voters. Um, and this is done in, in, in a traditional polling format. Once you have an idea of what you want to say, then you need to figure out how you're going to say it. And this is the less scientific, more creative process where you actually have creative people and there are a lot of very, very creative people who work in political advertising who are going to take a message that has been tested and they're going to say, what is the most compelling uh, way to uh, capture the attention of the audience to deliver this message? There's a whole bunch of different ways you can do this, Um, everything from. Uh, from the script, so like, what is actually going to be said? Is it going to be candidate to camera? Is it going to be a voiceover mm-hmm. to the to the scenery to the setting of the ad? Is this going to be done? You know, candidate walking down Main Street. Is this going to be candidate looking direct at camera? Um, whatever it is, um, to the the music and the audio that goes into it, which conveys emotion. There's all these different things, but there's a creative process, and usually it'll be it'll be pitched as an idea. It gets approved, the script gets approved, then you actually go and film the ad. You'll actually have a production crew with people with a a camera and you have an audio engineer and et cetera, et cetera, Um, and you shoot the ad. Um, Depending on the budget of the campaign, sometimes you'll shoot multiple ads and then you'll go into a focus group and you'll test which ones uh, will be most impactful to voters. And then once you've decided which one you're going to run and what your kind of message cadence is going to be, what you're going to say when, then you ship your ad to your media buyer and you say, hey, I want this to go up on TV in these markets. Here's your budget or this is how many people we want to reach. Go buy your media. And then your media buyer goes and they place the ads. They physically call up the stations and they say, hey, I, this is my ad. They send the creative to those stations and it ends up on TV and then eventually people at home will see it. During The Voice, or during Dancing with the Stars, or doing during right. whatever show that they watch that, that the ad's going to air during. So, that's the very abbreviated version of of that process. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it's it takes uh, quite some time. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of different um, a lot of different people, a lot of different very smart people involved in doing this between the media buyer and the creative person, and the pollster, and the candidate, and you know all these things come together. What we do at Deep Root um, is uh, we essentially introduce an analytical layer into the media buying process. So we are actually not media buyers ourselves, but instead we'll partner with campaigns and media buyers to help, okay. um, to help them know the best places to go put their ads. For a combination of effectiveness, are we reaching the right people? And efficiency, are we spending our dollars um, the best that we possibly can? And so um, the way that we do that is in the short term, we identify who, who the voters we want to talk to using traditional micro-targeting techniques um, or voter scoring techniques, which I can talk about some if you'd like. Yeah. Um, we decide who are the people who are gonna decide the outcome of this election? Who are the persuadable voters? Who is our get out to vote audience? Who are the people that it, if they vote, they'll vote for my candidate and we need to make sure they go vote. Who are the, who are the people who care specifically about these different issues? We take those individuals from the voter file And we match against cable set-top box, smart TV data, other forms of media consumption data to measure what those key constituencies are watching on TV. So traditionally, in the old way, um, political campaigns would purchase ads using demographic ratings from a company called Nielsen, which I'm sure you and your listeners have heard of. Um, Nielsen um, has, has been around for a long time and they've come up with very innovative ways to measure TV. Um, but with the introduction of new data sources like cable set-top box and smart TV data, um, new technology that allows people like me to uh, wrestle huge amounts of data into submission to glean information from and, and deliver actionable ins- insights from, we're able to actually see physically what key voters that we care about are watching on TV. Um, important to note, it's all in a privacy-compliant way. We never see the name and address associated with yeah. the viewing behavior, um, but we know that that person, let's say, is a swing voter, and with billions of rows of TV data for swing voters, for example, we can start to paint a very accurate picture of what those voters are watching on TV. Then we can start producing what we call custom TV ratings for every show on on TV. So where Nielsen might say Dancing with the Stars does a 10 rating for adults 35 plus, we can say it does a 14 rating for swing voters and a 16 rating for Get Out the Vote audience and an eight rating for for Persuadable Women. I'm making up the audience. Yeah, sure, sure. that then allows the media buyer to use our data, which we deliver to them um, in, in a, within a platform for them to be able to use and interact with, to use the data to start making optimized media buying decisions.
4: Um, so this actually leads really well into kind of the the next uh, question. And I I guess I want to know about the level of specificity you can get with TV, because if you just, you know, think about it from a total layman's, you know, you're just trying to kind of the issue you have, you know, haven't studied it at all. Um, you can come up with arguments like, oh, TV has diminishing audiences because of streaming, and it's a, you know, blunt and it seems like a blunt instrument. You don't know who's going to be watching your ads, and so on and so forth. So, can you just maybe give some examples and how, how specific and targeted yeah. can you get and do you get when you're trying to find people and
5: show yeah. ads? So um, there, there's a couple points that I would make in response to that question. Um, number one, TV viewership is without a doubt changing. Um, of course, the way that we are measuring TV viewership for all the reasons I just discussed is also changing, yeah. um, which is a good thing. That said, um, a huge majority of TV is still watched live. Um, the, the most recent uh, Nielsen study of, of overall TV viewership Estimated that the average American watches about four and a half hours of live TV a day. That's significant. Um, that's a lot of TV. Yeah. Now this is what tends to happen. And there there are competing reports.
4: And, and just real quick, when you talk about live TV, does that include like stuff where you can fast forward through the commercials? That doesn't, right?
5: That would be like, time shifted TV. That would be time shifted TV. So so TV. Okay. What Nielsen says is that um the average American adult spends four and a half hours a day watching t- live TV and about an additional half hour watching time-shifted TV. Oh, wow, yeah. So they watch a lot of TV. Yeah. Um, but when you start adding it up, it actually makes sense. Let's say you watch an hour of the morning show in the morning while you're getting ready for work or while you're making breakfast with the kids, and then you watch um, you know, four hours of TV a night, um, or maybe it's three hours and you watch more on the weekend mm-hmm. because of live sports. Um, these numbers can add up fairly quickly. What tends to happen about about TV viewership is this. Um, we, as people tend to project our own activities onto the population at large. And so, yeah. um, people who live in places like DC, um, who might be slightly more educated, slightly higher income, um, live in urban areas, they might watch less live TV. And so they assume, well, I watch less TV, t- less live TV. And so the population at large, yeah. uh, must also watch less live TV. Um, You can imagine that the average TV consumer in, let's say, Washington, D.C. is different than the average TV consumer in Des Moines, Iowa. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what's really great about what we do is that we are able to actually measure local TV viewership as it changes. So if we have uh, a campaign that's running in Washington, D.C., then we will will measure how people are watching TV in Washington, D.C. And if we've got a candidate who's running in Des Moines, Iowa, we'll measure how people are watching TV in Des Moines, Iowa. So these numbers will change. Um, Because we are an analytical layer into this process, we are not afraid to say, hey, the data is indicating that our target audiences are watching less TV. So we need Mm -hmm. to change our TV advertising uh, budget accordingly. So that's, you know, that's part of it. But to go back to your previous question about how precise can we be? so. Um, this is something that's talked a lot about in the industry. You might have heard the buzzword addressable TV. Yep. Um, addressable TV is the idea that you can deliver a specific ad to a specific household. The classic example of this is if you've got a family or you've got a cul-de-sac of four houses, they can all be watching the same program mm-hmm. and they can, all, uh, they can all see different ads during the same program. Mm-hmm. Same cul-de-sac, same program, different ads because of addressable TV. Yeah. Um, that technology is available but limitedly so. Um, there, are, um, there are a variety of things that go into this, um, but the, frankly, just that the technology is not there at scale. Mm-hmm. Um, that's certainly where the industry is going. But for now, a huge majority of TV is purchased on traditional or linear TV. Okay. This is the idea of you reserve time during a program mm-hmm. and you wow. hope that the audience shows up to see it because yeah. it's going to air no matter who's there or not, rather right. than choosing a specific person. So what we're able to do to optimize TV, linear TV, is using advanced statistical models to essentially assign probabilities to how likely our target audiences are to be watching based on viewing behavior that we have already seen in their data, in that observed viewership data from the set-top box or the smart TV. So we're able to then tell our client Uh, with great confidence, because we have huge samples and a ton of data, uh, which programs are most likely to be viewed by our target audiences, so then they will then reserve time during those programs.
4: I get that you don't control the content of the ads, um, but uh, do you think the content of the ad matters? Have you learned anything about that? What sort of ads do and don't work? Because you know, uh, whenever a new ad comes out, uh, you can see on Twitter or wherever, all these uh, reporters kind of great at saying, great ad, you know, terrible ad. And sometimes I think when I see, you know, that news happening, like, I wonder if, like, David and the people at Deep Root and their Democratic, like, counterparts are, you know, laughing to themselves about, like, how little, you know, all of us actually know or understand about this. And, uh, I yeah, if uh, just... What works and what doesn't in your view?
5: Sure, so um, what have I learned or what do I know? Um, The content of the ad um, matters immensely. Okay. Um, And and this is why. I can do the most sophisticated targeting possible, and if we are not putting the right message in front of these people, it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter. Um, At the same time, you can have the best message, the best creative, and if you can't properly deliver it to the right people, it's not going to have the desired impact. Mm -hmm. So we are a piece of the puzzle, but we are not the entire piece of the puzzle. So doing targeted TV alone does not guarantee victory. Um, Doing targeted TVs to deliver a great message uh, with a compelling candidate, that's when you've got kind of the perfect combination. In the right political environment, that's when you've got the perfect combination um, to make this thing work. Now, what works and what doesn't work? uh, As I said before, there are a ton of variables, um, including... Uh, the market, the target audience, who you're trying to reach, the political environment, the state of the race. Um, Is there competitive um, advertising running against you? Are there allied groups running ads at the same time? Uh, So like an outside super PAC that's running ads. These things all change and alter the political environment, which can make it very difficult to measure, to singularly measure the impact of different things. So what works varies immensely. Um but making sure that you deliver something that does work right. is also that that's the hard part. But that's sure. that's what really matters. Um and so the the point that I would make is one of the challenges that we face in our business is that I would say that um and I'm stealing this, this is something that uh my boss Alex Lundry, who co-founded Deep Root says all the time, our ability to target has actually um has actually outweighed our ability to create. Mm-hmm. So we're able to be more sophisticated. Uh, with who we're targeting and how we're delivering messages, messages to them, we can segment messages to different uh, groups of the population in a way where content creation, it's difficult for them to keep up for a variety of reasons, budget, sure. time, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the, what every campaign is trying to do, essentially, is they're trying to find that perfect combination of right message, right audience. Okay. Um, and um, that's, that's the goal. Uh, it's not easy, and there's not a silver bullet of what works. Mm-hmm. Now, to your point about uh, DC journalists, I would venture to guess that this is not always true, but oftentimes what a, uh, what a journalist on Twitter sees as an effective ad, it can be meaningfully different than what um, uh, a, a likely or a registered voter would see as something that would impact their vote choice. Mm-hmm. That's not always the case. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but people in the DC bubble broadly, like we have an idea of what's a powerful ad and what's not a powerful ad. Um, And you can actually find when you test it or when you start running it, that that's not the case. Um, And so uh, these things are difficult to measure. Absolutely. Um, But I would would probably agree with you that there might be a separation between what a swing voter in North Carolina sees as powerful or impacting their vote choice and what uh, a journalist in DC sees.
4: So uh, TV obviously matters a lot. uh, And You can see that with the money spent on it, the people it reaches, so on and so forth. But it seems like, uh, especially in the last few election cycles, there are a lot of other places where campaigns are using data to uh, raise money, to gauge public opinion, to turn voters out, to persuade voters, uh, what have you. And I think one thing our listeners would be uh, interested in is just kind of a tour of what this ecosystem of uh, campaign data Looks like what are what are people doing? What's going on behind the curtain? Um, and you know, yeah, don't feel like you have to get you know every single person's specific pet project, right? But just you know, any any broad strokes you have about uh, where the innovations are coming from? Sure.
5: So um, where the innovations are coming from is uh, generally increased access to data,
4: mm-hmm.
5: um, increased access to software. Um, And back-end infrastructure that allows you to handle and process all this data, and then a growing talent pool of individuals who have the skill set to be able to manage and analyze this data in a meaningful way. So what we do at Deep Root, we are highly highly specialized. We we are there to optimize TV buys. Um, So we optimize based on where our targets are most likely to be watching and then also where is the most cost-effective place to place those ads so that the campaigns can save money. So what the campaign in Texas, which I've talked about estimated is that we saved them over $4 million on broadcast TV alone um, using our analytics. Uh, The simple version of this is that um, TV stations still price their inventory using those demographic ratings Mm -hmm. and they don't know our custom ratings. And so they might price something as a 10 rating, but if we say it as a 15 swing rating, I'm making Mm -hmm. up the numbers. That's a, that's a big sale that they don't know yeah. that they're having. So we're going to pay for a 10, we're going to get a 15. Where this comes into play elsewhere, and again, this is not specifically what we do, is that in similar ways, campaigns are able to optimize um, basically everything that they do. If they, mm-hmm. if they are willing to buy into this concept that data can help us inform and make smarter decisions. Um, a lot has been written about what the Obama campaign did in 2012. They did a lot of this very, very well. Um, You know, it can be everything from optimizing subject lines, like what subject line is going to have the highest open rate on an email so that you're able to get click through and get the highest donations to optimizing not only what doors you're going to knock on, but actually the route that your precinct walker should Uh take to have the most effective um, an efficient use of their time. So it's like right, if you like want to have them, salesman
4: thing, yeah. if you
5: want them to knock on the most number of doors rather than handing them a list, like my first job in politics was knocking on doors in San Diego for a congressional mm-hmm. campaign. And I was just handed a list and I basically got to decide how I walked around those neighborhoods and mm-hmm. what was the best way to do it, which mean that I spent time moving my car and what, you know, these sort of things campaigns now are able to say like, no, this is, this is actually the way that you should walk around this neighborhood to be able to hit the most number of houses in the, in the shortest amount of time. So um, data, generally speaking, and analytics more broadly, um, is able to optimize really every aspect of a campaign of how, of how these things work. Um, is this gonna, w- what difference does this make, right? Like this is kind yeah. of the question, like, okay, this is interesting, but like, does right. it really matter? Um, what we've seen on the TV, we've definitely seen impact, like I mentioned, on vote yeah. choice and favorability. Um, it's gonna make a campaign more effective, mm-hmm. um, but it's also gonna make a campaign more efficient. So campaigns have finite dollars, and they have a yeah. finite amount of time. And so a campaign's job is to, to essentially drain every ounce of value out of their time and out of their dollars before election day. Mm-hmm. And what data and analytics, broadly speaking, is able to do is to make all of that money and all of that time go further by just being more efficient with what you're doing and how you're doing it. So if that's a difference, you can imagine if you've got someone who's walking, mar- walking precincts and knocking on doors five days a week – and if you're able to increase the number of doors they hit by 10 doors a day, then you're hitting 50 more door, doors a week. And if you have them doing this for four weeks, then all of a sudden you've had 200 more voter contacts. Right, uh, and that's just off of, that's right. off of one volunteer. That's off of one volunteer. So you can imagine this is gonna make for the same amount of resources, same dollars spent, sense. it's gonna make everything just more, more efficient. So a lot of this is, is a matter of efficiency, mm-hmm. making sure that dollars aren't being wasted, time isn't being yeah. wasted so that campaigns can operate as, as smartly as they possibly can.
4: Awesome. So two more questions. Um, This one is one that I'm sure you get all the time. So everybody's read about the 2008 and 2012 uh, Obama campaign data operation. You just mentioned it um, about how they, you know, made all these innovations and did all these different things that nobody else uh, had done before and sort of the, uh, the narrative so to speak about this uh, in A lot of the journalism about it is that the Republicans have been attempting to uh, catch up after that, have seen that that was effective and have been trying to uh, sort of make up that ground. So you work for a Republican analytics firm. Uh, How's it going? Are you guys catching up? How do you feel like the progress on (laughs) that is?
5: So um, let me say this. Um, The Democrats are really smart and they've they've been able to do this on two consecutive presidential campaigns very well. Um, and they deserve the credit that they're getting. Um, something that's interesting about working in D.C., these are people who we've worked on non-political projects with, or these are people who I've sat on panels with. Mm-hmm. I know them. They're, they're very smart people, and they do, they do a very good job. Um, I also happen to know that we've got a collection of very smart people as well, mm-hmm. um, and we are working very hard to do as good of a job or, frankly, a better job than they're doing. Um, there's certainly a competitive angle to this, Um, we want to serve our clients very well, we want to be doing really great work, we want to be innovating. Um, We also acknowledge that we're a bit of the underdogs in this case. Um, There's a lot of reasons for that. Um, Primarily that a lot of times presidential campaigns, the the phrase that I would use is that they are incubators for innovation. It's the place where you have the money and the staff, the scale, to try new things and to test them out and see what works. And They've also had, so they've had two great presidential campaigns in mm-hmm. 2008 and 2012, and then they've also had continuity between those things. So like mm-hmm. what they have built in 2008 continued on through 2012 rather mm-hmm. than like propping up an organization, and then on election day it all disappears, and then yeah. four years later I'm going to prop something up new. Um, so have, have, we, have we caught up? Um, I don't know. Um, I, I, don't, I, I would love for them to take me under the hood and show me all the things that they're doing. I right. assume that they're not going to do that um but uh so i don't know if we've caught up but i do know i'll speak specifically for deeproot um we've got uh, an awesome staff of really smart people who are innovating using new data sources in new really cool ways um we firmly believe in our product we firmly believe in our processes sure. and the work they're able to do um and you know we've had some occasions where we've been able to go head to head against people on the left and um especially in 2014 we were able to win now yeah. important point like, as I mentioned, analytics makes a difference. Oftentimes that difference is on the margin. So, like, was any amount of analytics going to keep Mitch McConnell from winning in 2014? Probably not. Was any amount of analytics going to allow Allison Leonard and Grimes to win in 2014? No, probably not. But we're able to put our, our product up against theirs in a real campaign environment. We feel good about it. But um, as, for, as far as kind of the overall, um, overall trend, I am content with people continuing to write that the Democrats are so much smarter than us, that they've got this figured out, that we're trying to catch up. Uh, and we're content just kind of putting our heads down and servicing our clients well and, and doing good and smart work.
4: Fair enough. So whatever the topic is, and you know we have different topics and different guests every week, uh, I kind of got in the habit of making the last question sort of the same format, where you talk about the past of whatever you're doing and the future of whatever you're doing. Yep. So uh, in this case, and we've talked about this some already, um but if you were doing tv uh essentially same sort of consulting about tv about uh ads and how to do this better uh say 20 or 30 years ago um it seems like uh, or i guess the question would be how different is it yeah. um because you could potentially argue it the same way that are two ways that maybe the technology has changed everything or maybe it's just the same not that you're cracking but you have fancier tools right now Um, and then the other question would be the future and i'm not asking about the future of tv and like the broad sense of like streaming and whatnot but you know in 2020 or 2024 or 2040 do your problems change do uh the things that you're looking at and working on and trying to do uh significantly differ where do you see sort of this world that you're inhabiting going
5: so to your first question um how different is it now uh it's an interesting question because the answer is frankly it's entirely different and entirely the same all at once Mm -hmm. so the process that i outlined in my first question or my first answer um we are still creating an ad and there is still a physical person who's placing that ad on Mm -hmm. tv to be viewed by voters Mm -hmm. okay what has changed is as i described how we measure and how we value where those ads should be placed. Mm-hmm. So there's just a new layer and an, as yeah. I've said, an analytical layer into right. this process. So the way that we're measuring TV has changed entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, but the process of creating an ad and delivering it is still largely the same. Mm-hmm. Now that will change eventually, most likely, but for now it's it's still entirely the same. So that's, that's an interesting question. To your point in 2020, 2030, 2040, um, how much is this going to be different? So um, I kind of answer that with a philosophical question and we're going to have to deal with this. Like in the future, what is TV? And I'll use, I'll give you a very like pop culture, topical okay. answer. Okay. Yeah. So like if I watch live late, late show with James Corden yeah. and I see him do carpool karaoke, is that TV? Yeah, I, I guess it is. I'm watching it live on TV. Okay. Now if I go on my computer or my phone and I watch the YouTube clip of him doing Carpool Karaoke, again, on my computer, on my phone, is that TV? Well, it's content created for TV that I'm now watching online on a mobile device. Okay. Well, what happens if I pull up Carpool Karaoke on YouTube through my smart TV that's connected to the internet right. and I put it on my TV, on my, my physical TV, the big screen that's in my basement or in my living room and I watch it that way? is that TV. It's TV content Mm -hmm. watched on a TV, Mm -hmm. but it's delivered through streaming Mm -hmm. rather than through cable or through an antenna. Mm -hmm. Where this, in my opinion, is going to go is we're just going to go to a more more broad video viewership model. Um, There are a lot of things that need to go into this, including how stuff is measured and how stuff is purchased and these sort of things. Um, But people are still consuming more and more video than ever before. Mm -hmm. Um, Oftentimes that video ends up being physically put on a TV, whether it's through cable, satellite, broadcast, streaming, smart TV, Chromecast, Apple TV, whatever it is. It still ultimately ends up being there, and that's of great interest to advertisers. Mm -hmm. So what someone like me is going to have to do is like, okay, the problem is still the same. We need to measure where the people we we want to talk to our viewing content so we can place ads there. Now the methodology that we're gonna use and the different data sources that we're gonna use and the technology that we're using to do that will continue to evolve. But the ultimate goal of measuring where they are so that we can advise clients on where to put their message in order to have the greatest amount of impact, that problem's gonna remain the same. The mechanisms how we answer that question will change. Um, So I'm not much of like a forecaster, like I don't really know when all this is gonna happen, like when all these changes will come to be. Um, you know, but for someone like me who, uh, is still, is still relatively young and hopes to have a long career in this, I can't stick my head in the sand and think like, yeah. just be like, Oh, well, this isn't changing now. I need to be thinking forward of where the industry is going so that we can, we can continue to measure these things. And that's, that's the big challenge that we face, but I'm confident we'll figure it out. Oh, huh. that makes a lot of sense. All right. Awesome. Thanks for coming on the show. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me.